Welcome to the Jenny Katrin Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Foresight. At Foresight, we are cultivating healthy leaders to lead thriving organizations. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. Please enjoy the rest of our show. Well, hey, everyone. We're so glad you're here again today. And I'm excited to introduce you to a new friend, somebody I feel like I should have known for a long time. But uh, Dr. Randy Ross is the founder and CEO, and I love how he describes CEO. He says, chief enthusiasm officer of an organization called Remarkable. um, He's a master of cultural transformation and has a unique understanding of employee engagement, offering practical solutions for increasing both team morale and performance. So you all know I already love his work because of of what he focuses on. Uh, He is a speaker, a consultant, a coach focused on building teams and developing leaders. And I'm really excited to talk to uh, Dr. Ross today because just the little bit of time I've had to connect with him, uh, I am already a fan. So you guys are going to enjoy him as well. So uh, Dr. Ross, welcome. We're glad you're here today. Well, thank you, Jenny. It's a privilege and an honor to be with you. Uh, so go ahead and give us a little bit of your story, background. Uh, tell us a little bit about your world. Well, okay. Um, I spent the first 18, 19 years of my career uh, in the not-for-profit space. Specifically, I pastored churches in both Texas and in Florida. had the privilege of planting a church in West Palm Beach. Awesome. And then God distinctly called me into the marketplace. Uh, I believe that the next great spiritual awakening is going to take place in the marketplace. And as much as I love the pulpit, I also love the boardroom and, and my, mm-hmm. my latter pastoral responsibilities. I had many of our, our executive leaders who attended our church invite me to come speak to their groups at regional or national conferences and spend some time in the boardroom with them. And I just fell in love with this idea that, that uh, people need to understand that their work is a form of worship and how mm-hmm. they work shows what they worship. And the reality is that we know through research that the vast majority of people uh, truly don't love their jobs. They're not highly emotionally engaged. And so engagement levels are low. And I just feel like I'm called to help change that. And so I like to go into an environment and talk to them about organizational health and leadership concepts that really will create environments or cultures that will inspire people to bring their best to work every day. I love that. And you have such a unique story because I think for a lot of us, this is my, my, my story is the reverse, right? I started in corporate and, and went into ministry and you did the opposite. So can you give us a little more insight and on what that transition or that kind of redirection looked like for you? Well, it was interesting because it's not something that I ever, ever would have imagined earlier in my career. Uh, and it was a bit of a scary adventure, to be honest with you, because I, I wasn't quite sure what God was doing. But you know, when he speaks to you and, and mm-hmm. distinctly draws you and plants a vision within your heart uh, to move in a different direction, that's what he did with me. But now, looking back on it, I so see the thread of his work in my life uh, through each one of my uh, opportunities, first in ministry and now as a minister in the marketplace, even though... Mm-hmm. I work with a lot of Fortune 100 companies, and that's not something that I lead with because that would scare some of them to death. Right. But, uh, but the reality is that I, I like, I love to take transformational truth into corporate environments and see life change take place, to see light bulbs come on, and people really begin to understand their God-given design and their giftedness and deploy that in such a way that it brings meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment to life. So. 
nothing is more, um, I, I guess, uh, exciting to me than to go into a corporate setting and take some of our concepts and principles and share those. And then people to come back and say, you know, those concepts and ideas, they really, really helped me in business, mm-hmm. but got to tell you that they transformed my home life as well. Yeah. And for me, that's just, uh, that's exciting because that's when you know you're really delivering truth that doesn't return void. Uh, yeah. So that's what we love to do. I love it. Well, and I, I just, I think it's such a healthy reminder, uh, you know, to all of us of the significance of where, where, wherever we're working, you know, wherever we're spending those hours of our day, giving our, our talents and gifts, just the recognition of, uh, you know, how our faith can inform that. And, you know, you, you reference transformational truths, you know, how those show up in our everyday world. So I absolutely, I just love that. And, you know, just a fun, fun to learn a little bit about your journey in that regard. And I could probably pick your brain on that for a, a number of hours, but I, I want to focus today on, you have a brand new book releasing, like literally as this podcast releases, I, it will be brand new in the market called Relation, Relationomics. Is that right? That's right. And Relationomics uh, is business powered by relationships. So good. And I love like one of the things that caught my attention right away when I was um, uh, opening up the book in the first chapter, it says thriving organizations are powered by people. So I want to hear a little bit more about why you believe that why relationships are so critical for organizational health and success, because I think most of us would not disagree with it. But I know that there's a few more layers behind that in your in your thinking. Well, there is. But it's pretty obvious if you think about it, because People, they create our products, they sell our products, they deliver our products, they service those products, they, they're a part of the service uh, of any, any organization, and, and your people ultimately are the ones who craft the culture. It's yeah. the relationships, it's how we get along together in the sandbox, and, and arguably culture is the single most important differentiating factor that any organization possesses. And so it, mm-hmm. it amazes me how much time, energy, and resources we pour into product development and manufacturing, how much time and energy we spend on processes and organizational efficiency, yes. um, how much we, you know, time we spend even refining the supply chain, and how little most organizations pour into their people when it comes to building healthy relationships. But the reality is that People and organizations thrive in relationally rich environments. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I know that's true because we're designed to live in relationships. God designed us to live in community. Yeah. But the reality is that the, the principles that need to be applied in order to develop healthy relationships are very rarely practiced in corporate environments. It seems like common sense, but it's certainly not common practice. Right. And so what I wanted to do in this book was to set forth some principles and practices that are absolutely necessary to cultivate healthy relationships and and help managers to be able to impart these to their teams uh, and corporate leaders to be able to apply them to produce a relationally rich environment. I love that. And I want, I want you to get to, in just a minute, those, I think you have four principles to, uh, to cultivating healthy relationships. So I want to get to that, but do you have a sense of why, why have we eliminated that from, especially corporate environments or but from work environments? Why did we remove this relational piece or do you have any sense of, of how we got to that place when we are so wired for relationship? 
Well, I think there's obviously a heavy emphasis upon delivering results, but mm-hmm. any organization that's you know intent on delivering results without building and affirming relationships doesn't understand how people are impacted emotionally by their work. And we know through Gallup's research that less than a third of the American workforce is what we call emotionally attached to their work experience. They're not engaged. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it on any given day in America, only three out of 10 people wake up in the morning and go, God, it's going to be a great day. I can't wait to get to work because today I'm going to have a positive impact on someone's life. Seven out of 10 people wake up, they roll over, they slap the alarm and they go, Oh, good God, it's another day. And I can't believe I have to go to work. And for me, that's a travesty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Organizations flounder. Um, They have mediocre performance. Their people are not emotionally engaged in what they're doing all because there hasn't been this emphasis on helping create healthy relationships. And so if we can get this relational piece, right. Yeah. And not treat our people like assets, but really begin to invest in them to help them bring a better self to the table. Then we're going to have higher levels of morale. We'll be able to tap into discretionary effort and we're going to build a better team dynamic that excels because you've got higher levels of collaboration and innovation. I love it. I love it. So good. All right. I'd love to hear those principles to cultivating healthy relationships. Cause I think everybody's like, okay, yep. You know, how, how, how do we do this, especially in, in the work workplace? Well, um, so I'll go down through those four rather quickly and then we can top and top, stop and drill down on any of those that you might be interested in. But the, they're the, really the four, four sections of the book. The, the first one has to do with intentionality. Um, relationships like everything else, you're either going to have a relationship by design or you're going to have a relationship by default. And we say the same thing about culture. And so most people, they sort of drift in and out of relationships, but you can't do that. So I'll, I'll ask you, you know, to be effective, you have to have a business plan, Mm -hmm. but I'll ask people. So if you have to have a business plan, what's your relational plan with your team? What's your relational plan in your marriage? Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. People look back with a blank stare and they go, well, what do you mean? I said, well, if you don't have a plan to move your marriage forward, if you don't have a plan to connect more deeply with people at work, then you're going to drift and you'll one day wake up with a culture by default. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to make it good, then you have to, to deliver uh, on a plan that's uh, creating a culture and relationships by design. So you have to be intentional about it. That's mm-hmm. fundamental. The second thing is you have to enter into our relationships with a spirit of humility. And that simply means that we have to be honest about our self-assessment. Uh, we have to feel comfortable in our own skin because authenticity and transparency are absolutely essential if you want to connect deeply with other people. And so we talk about how do you stay in the fray when relationships get difficult? It's amazing to me how many people, when they encounter challenges in a relationship, they just bolt. They, yeah. they, quit, they quit a job, they move on, they dump a relationship rather than staying in that relationship and understanding that very possibly the reason that individual is in your life is to help sharpen and hone you and your relational capacities. Wow. And so humility, just understand that we all have room to grow. And then the third piece is accountability, the principle of accountability, building bold relationships. And that has to do with, with feedback. Um, because I believe very much that feedback is the breakfast of champions Hmm. and we have to not only be open to feedback and we talk about how you 
can position yourself and prepare yourself to be open to receive feedback, but, but also to, to aggressively seek feedback because the organizations that are the healthiest and the organizations that thrive are those that have been able to, to create open loops of continuous feedback mm-hmm. where people are constantly challenging each other to grow. And so accountability is a, a big part of that. And then the last principle is the principle of sustainability. And uh, this is about the heart of leadership. And I think this is a powerful statement that we use in the book that leadership must be about something beyond self-interest, greater than self-promotion and more noble than self-service. Uh-huh. And so we talk about, you know, what, what does good leadership look like and how do you move from being a good to a remarkable leader? What are the characteristics and components of that? And really try to provide some practical help that people can use to build better relationships, not only in the professional lives, but in their personal lives as well. So good, gosh. And I know we could spend time on each of those. Which of those four do you, do you think leaders struggle with the most? Do you see one that kind of stands out that we, that we wrestle with the most? It's, inter- it's an interesting question. And I'm not really quite sure how to answer it because I think that at different times in our lives, we may be better at one of those than another. Makes sense. But what I have found is that Almost everybody flounders in one of those areas, if not more than one of those areas at any given time. So mm-hmm. our prayer and hope is that we're able to provide some, some very useful advice that people can take and practically apply. Yeah, I love that. And kind of feels like it would be a little bit uh, cyclical in that, you know, you know, as I'm growing as a leader, I might be becoming sharper in each of the four, but then I'm going to hit another like, you know, growth edge as a leader. And I'm going to realize, oh, this one that often trips me up. I've got, I've got some growing here again to do to, to be building healthy relationships and being more intentional or whatever it might be. But those are fantastic. So the four were intentionality, a spirit of humility, accountability, and sustainability, correct? That's right. So good. And the, and the book, and we're going to give you guys the, the details on uh, where to find the book uh, links to the show notes and stuff with all of that. But, um, but I love that it walks through, walks through those. Give us for a minute. I want to go back to the conversation around culture, because this is a big one. Um, and you have a, you have a, a, a chapter in the book titled the culture conversation. You make one statement in there that really got my attention. You say a remarkable culture is a place where people believe the best in one another, want the best for one another, and expect the best from one another. I feel like we could put that like on our walls at our offices just to get us thinking again. Believe the best in one another, want the best for one another, and expect the best from one another. And I wish this was more obvious and common in our organizations, but I, I have not found that to be true, both in organizations that I've been a part of and I've had the privilege to lead and then with a lot of the organizations that I get to work with. So why, like... Why do you think we miss that? Why do you think this is such a challenging piece for us as leaders? Well, I think that sometimes <clears throat> we may have those components, but we really don't think about culture as being that trilogy of components. And I think that mm-hmm. those are not only essential, but we have to follow them in that order. This uh-huh. is actually a concept that we espoused in our book, Remarkable. We talked about defining what a remarkable culture looks like. This is our definition of a remarkable culture. And so it goes like this. You, a remarkable culture is a place where people believe the best in each other. And that speaks to trust. Uh, trust is both given, but it's also earned. And so in a high trust environment, 
uh, when there's high trust, there's, there's low, what I call resistance. Mm-hmm. Change and progress can come relatively quickly. But in, in low trust environments, then there's high resistance and change in progress is hard to come by because trust is foundational for all relationships. And so when there's not a high level of trust, you, you find that people are less likely to follow leadership. They're skeptical. When there's a vacuum of communication, they'll typically fill that void by expecting the worst rather than believing the best. And so it has all kinds of ramifications, but trust is foremost and foundational. And so we have to believe the best in one another. But then the second part of it is we, because of high trust, then we believe the best in one another, Mm -hmm. uh, or excuse me, want the best for one another. And wanting the best for one another has to do with compassion and connection. Uh, do those people believe that we have their best interest at heart? Uh, do we have each other's backs? Are we in this together? And that's absolutely essential that we have this bond where we work together like a team, but we love like a family. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about a dysfunctional family. I'm talking about a healthy family. Um, and then the third component is then we expect the best from one another. And that's a statement of accountability. And I think oftentimes in corporate circles, we get that third part right because we've got metrics and spreadsheets and performance plans and all mm-hmm. kinds of performance you know, improvement methodologies that we apply to expect the best from others because we're looking for results. Yeah. But the reality is if we don't have a high level of trust and a high level of connection before we have a high level of accountability, then people are going to be they're going to feel used and they're going to feel like automatons just grinding out work for someone else. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see high turnover types of environments. And so all three of those are important and it's important in that order. Yeah, I love that. And and you got my wheels turning because you talked about, you know, in the corporate culture, you often see that third one because the system structures the bottom line, you know, all of that kind of impacts that accountability piece. And I think sometimes for those of our listeners that are more in ministry, nonprofit environments, they may have the compassion and connection piece. I think that was the second one that want the best for one another, mm-hmm. but then the accountability piece is lacking. So I love right. that, you know, looking at these three things and then you saying the order of that's really important, uh, just is really profound. So that's what I want to read that again, just for everybody that a remarkable culture is a place where people believe the best in one another. That's the first piece, want the best for one another. That's the second part. And expect the best from one another, the third part. So powerful. So powerful. So go back to this idea of trust. Um, you said that trust is the commodity, as you know, is a key commodity of leaders. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. And I was really struck by uh, the light bulbs were going on when you said high trust often is a low resistance environment and low trust is a high resistance environment. You're like, Oh my gosh, there's the formula right there. If we're like, okay, how's the trust level in our organization, you know, looking at its relationship to, you know, the level of resistance probably is going to start giving you a clue. Is that true? Absolutely. We, we say that tension within an organization is good mm-hmm. because that tension comes about as a result of, of diversity of thought and influence and input, which is a good thing. And tension is healthy, but resistance isn't. Resistance is when people drag their feet or they're passive aggressive or they question leadership. They're not willing to follow. And, and that's, a, that's problematic because in those environments, you can always trace it back to a lack of trust. So whenever a leader 
feels that kind of heavy pushback, that resistance from, from their people, then they know that they've, they've lost trust. And they have to call a timeout and nothing really should move forward until they either you know, they ascertain and address where they've lost that trust. Because I think ultimately, uh, Jenny, the, the three questions that people ask before they decide whether or not they're going to follow any leader are these. The first one is, can I trust this person? Mm-hmm. In other words, will they do what's right all the time? Uh, when push comes to shove, will they do the right thing or will they compromise their values? Right. And I think that's important to people. It's, it's critical in terms of me being able to throw the weight of my support behind any endeavor or any individual. The second question is, can I count on this person? In other words, are they a competent individual? Are they dependable? Will they deliver on their promises? And do they have the the knowledge and the skill set to make good on those promises. So, you know, can I, can I count on them? Mm-hmm. And then the third question is, does this person have my best interest at heart? Mm-hmm. Are, are they working for themselves? And am I just a, a, a tool or an asset to get them to where they want to be? Or do they really have my interests and my concerns at heart as well? And so when people can answer those three questions in the affirmative and say, yes, absolutely. I trust that person. I can count on that person. And that person has my best interest at heart. Then you've got someone I think who, who will follow your leadership. I love that. So how do we as leaders earn or build that trust with our, the teams that we're leading? Yeah. Well, one of the chapters that we, we have in, in the book is we talk about, you know, leading with love. And that's a concept that obviously those who are faith forward understand profoundly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, we can't allude to it with chapter and verse in the book, but you'll, you'll recognize right away where the principles and concepts come from. But what does it mean to lead with love? Um, we know from 1 Corinthians 13 what love looks like. But to break it down and make it real specific, I, I think a, a leader who is leading with love shares several things with those they lead. First, they share their time. And time is obviously one of the most valuable commodities that we have. And so how we use our time and share our time is it states and shows our values. Hmm. A leader can also share their support. They can share the resources uh, that they have to ensure that people are successful in their endeavors. But not only that, they share their relationships. And, you know, people are typically one or two introductions away from a breakthrough. And if we introduce people to the right other people through a concept that we call net weaving, a friend of mine, Bob Littell, came up with that concept, but net weaving rather than networking, which means that we share stories together because all of our stories are intertwined. And if we can find common threads to connect, then powerful things can happen. But then leaders can also share their knowledge, um, uh, their competence, and, and areas of expertise because uh, that knowledge can be a powerful uh, gift. But we can also share our story. And our story is not just the highlight reels. I'm not talking about the Facebook posts. I'm talking, right. about, I'm talking about your failures as well because we can encourage people by our successes, but we can encourage them just as much by sharing our failures. And the things that we learn through those failures to help people avoid maybe some of the same pitfalls and potholes, uh, we can share our appreciation. Uh, and I think that's also profoundly powerful, sharing our appreciation when people do things well and affirming folks. Um, 
and, and all of that just wrapped up together, I think is what it means to, to share our love as leaders mm-hmm. and what it means to, to be able to um, impact relationships and move them toward maturity. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, and frankly, that, that a lot of this, convert, this whole concept and, you know, this idea of relationships being so, you know, critical to our leadership is something that I feel like I had to learn the hard way, you know, and that I was just such a driven kind of task focused, you know, accomplish the goal kind of young leader. And after a few bumps and bruises, I realized, oh, these, this relationship side of things actually matters. And uh, one of the things I have to tell myself often, you know, because as I'm hearing you talk about, you know, building that trust and, you know, leading with love, a lot of times for me, it just means I need to slow down to see people, right? To slow down and connect, engage. I love how you said share time, support, you know, just so many things that are about being human again, versus just being a machine trying to accomplish big goals and so maybe, maybe I needed this podcast mostly for me as a reminder <laughs> of, you know, just the value of that intentionally investing in people and building those relationships. It's so, so, so powerful. Um, so which takes me to my next question of uh, you, you talk about the four steps of growth. Maybe that's what I need at this point in the conversation. Well, so the four, the four steps of growth, uh, these these four steps are something that I actually gleaned from an individual in history by the name of Dr. Robert S. Hartman. And he was known in history as the father of modern axiology, Hmm. which is a very, very interesting field of study. It's a strain of philosophy that has to do with uh, a person's values uh, and, and value creation, but also value constructs because value constructs uh, help us understand how people see the world. I guess you could say it's their world view. Mm-hmm. And then value creation, we always talk about, you know, bringing value, adding value. Uh, but very few, few people truly know how to do that. But Dr. Hartman talked about the four components that are necessary for individuals to grow to maturity. And so I'll just pass those along as I have in the book. But the first one is you have to know yourself. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a really interesting idea because most people would say, well, of course I know myself. I mean, who, who would know me better than I do? Uh, the answer is maybe those that are closest to you, <laughs> because we all live with a certain degree of self-delusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to make an impression. We want to put a good foot forward. And, and sometimes, you know, we're even wearing mask, masks in order to fit in to certain environments. And so uh, we're all familiar with this idea of a blind spot. Uh, a blind spot is something that we don't see that other people see about us. And so we don't really know ourselves the way that we need to or should know ourselves. And a good way to get to know ourselves is twofold. I think one is through some, some powerful assessments that can give us insights and ideas, mm-hmm. but also this idea that we've talked about before about uh, feedback, asking people to give us feedback. And um, there's something we refer to in the book as a poor man's 360. And a lot of people in corporate ranks understand what a, a 360 is. It's just a, a mechanism whereby you garner feedback right. from people all around you, above you, below you, beside you. And they share with you insights as to how they observe you. Uh, but it's very time consuming. It's very costly. But uh, the poor man's 360 is a single question that you can ask anyone who's close to you. And the question is simply this. And before you ask it, you've got to give them complete 
freedom to, to provide you the feedback with candor because uh, you want to ask for the last, the last 10%, you know, the mm-hmm. first 70% is always the fluffy. Oh, you do this so well. Right. The, the next 20% is that stuff. Well, you might want to consider this, but the last 10% is really what we need to grow. And that's when people share with us those hard things that are not easy to deliver and often not easy to hear. But here's the question. Sit down with someone that knows you well and simply ask them this question. What is it like for you to be on the other side of me? Mm-hmm. In other words, how do you see me? How do you perceive me? Uh, what kind of an impact do I make in your world? And share with me how I can be better. Yeah. That's just a powerful, simple question to ask. And if you ask that of people around you who know you well, whether it be a spouse or your children or colleagues, it's amazing the kind of fodder that you can get for personal growth. So yeah, the first, fantastic. first thing is just to, to know, get to know yourself. The second piece, uh, and it's likewise fascinating to me, is you have to choose yourself. Mm. And um, it's, it seems like a strange statement, but you would be surprised how many people spend an inordinate amount of time living vicariously through others. Sure. I think it's good to be inspired by others, but I don't think it's good to try to imitate others. Right. Uh, We have this infatuation with uh, successful personalities, whether they be athletes or, or movie stars, or, I mean, that's why the tabloids, the checkout counter are so, so appealing. Uh, Even if you think about it, Facebook, oftentimes we get on Facebook because we're enamored with other people's lives. Yeah, And Hartman himself, he would laugh at that. And he would say, you have to choose yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I tell my kids this all the time, you know, be, be the absolute best version of yourself you can be. Don't be some knockoff second rate version of somebody else. Right. Don't, don't fall for peer pressure. Don't get caught up in other people's expectations. Don't follow the mold of society. You be uniquely you be you. Because everybody else is taken. Right. And so be the best version of yourself you can be. And so choosing yourself means that you're willing to invest deeply in yourself, which brings us to the third principle. And that's that we all have to create ourselves. Uh And, And this is the best part because every day we can choose to create ourselves, to move in a better direction. You know, if you blew it today, thank goodness for God's grace and forgiveness, because we can pick ourselves up and make a choice. To, to move in a different direction every single day we can create. And sometimes we have to recreate ourselves, mm-hmm. but we have to invest in ourselves to create our very best self. And, and then mm-hmm. lastly, and there, this is, I think critical, we have to give ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me. You may recall Abraham Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah. for anybody who you know, took a psychology class in high school or college. And if you, if you think about it, the top of Maslow's pyramid, most of us were told was a self-actualization. Mm-hmm. If you recall, there were five levels to the pyramid. Yep. The first one had to do with your basic needs for food, shelter, and clothing. And then it jumped up to security. And then you went to love and belonging. And the fourth tier was self-esteem. And at the pinnacle was self-actualization, being the very best that you can possibly be mm-hmm. and fulfilling your potential. But most people don't realize that in his latter years of life, uh, literally more toward his deathbed, he added another tier on top of oh. self-actualization. 
And if you research it, you can find it online. But it wasn't written about widely in, in the, the, the uh, psychological uh, works of the time. Hmm. But the tier he added above self-actualization uh, was self-transcendence. Huh. Because he was challenged by a good friend, and I've alluded to by the name of Dr. Robert S. Hartman, and Hartman and Maslow were good friends. And Hartman challenged Abe and he said, hey, here's the deal, Abe. A life wrapped up in itself makes a very small package. Wow. If you're only about finding your own personal fulfillment, you'll never actually understand what meaning in life is about until you give back to others. And that's why he added self-transcendence above self-actualization because we have to all get to this place that we grow to the point that we give back, that we leave a legacy, that we do good. Otherwise, why were we here? Right, right. Oh, that's so great. I did not know that little nugget about his hierarchy of needs and that that uh, extra layer. That's fascinating. I want to go study it now. So good. Well, Randy, this this has been fabulous. I know like uh, there's so many nuggets. I'm actually taking notes as we're doing our interview of just, you know, all of the things that you've shared. And I know that our listeners are going to be really impacted by it as well. So the book is called Relationomics. It is uh, releasing at the time of recording. Uh, by the time this, this episode airs, the book will have been released. And so I just want to encourage you all to check that out. I just think, you know, whether this comes naturally to you or, you know, this is, you're a little bit more like me, a person who is driven, focused, you know, running after the goals. This is such an important piece, important work to, to dig into and really understand the importance of creating healthy relationships. Uh, because especially for those of us as leaders, building relationships is core to the healthy culture and the outcomes we hope for. But a lot of times we skim over it and uh, focus more on the, on uh, the business components of what we're doing. And we miss the significance of the relationships we can build. So uh, Randy, anything, any last thoughts, words that you would like to leave us with before we wrap up? Well, I just want to say, Jenny, first of all, it's been great to be with you today, but also regardless of whether you're in a church uh, field or nonprofit uh, endeavor, or you're in the corporate world. Um, the way we work demonstrates how we worship and, and mm-hmm. work is a form of worship. And so, you know, if we worship money, that's going to show if we worship um, the father in heaven and we seek are seeking to make a huge impact in the world, then that's always going to happen through relationships. Uh, that's what God did for us when he sent his son, Jesus to earth. It wasn't about, it wasn't about a process. It wasn't about a book. It was about the person of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to have an impact on the world, it's going to be through personal, healthy relationships. Love it. So good. Uh, the book is Relationomics. You can check out more of Dr. Ross's work at drrandyross.com. And I'll be sure to put all of those links in the show notes. So Dr. Ross, thank you again so much for being with us. We're better for your time and investment and uh, eager to stay connected. So all the best to you with this new uh, release. Thank you, Jenny. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Jenny Catron Leadership Podcast. If you have any questions, please email Jenny at podcast at get the number four site.com. 
this content has helped you in any way, we would love for you to share this podcast with your friends and on social networks. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing content coming from the Jenny Katrin Leadership Podcast. Your comments mean the world to us, so please rate and leave comments on our podcast. And remember, you need foresight for success. We will see you next time.